everyone, welcome back to Cold Coffee No Glue Sticks. This is episode six of season two. And today I'm with the very lovely Michael Casis. And this one is a theory heavy episode. This is a deep dive into educational theory, not something we do very often on the pod, but it's a real brain teaser about cognitive load theory and busting some myths about learning strategies. So I really hope that you can get involved in this one. Um, as always, keep up to date with what's happening on the pod over on Instagram at Cold Coffee No Glue Sticks Pod and shoot me a message to tell me what you like, what you don't like, and who you want to hear from next. It's very nearly the end of another year in the classroom. We've got one more episode to wrap up 2022, but I hope you enjoy this one. Um, perhaps we can start with a bit of an overview of your teaching career, your education career, where you've kind of got to where you are now. Yeah, so I have been a teacher now for maybe 10, 11 or 12 years. I can't remember exactly, but somewhere around there. Mm. Um, Teaching is is in my family. So my mum's a teacher, my uncle's a teacher. This is on my mum's side. Uh, My cousin is a teacher on my dad's side. So teaching is something that's uh, in, in the blood, I guess. Something yeah. that we do uh, as a family, something that we've sort of always done. Um, so I guess that sort of framed me to, to be a teacher. Um, mm. I started with a Bachelor of Exercise Science uh, at ACU mm-hmm. at Strathfield, and that was mm-hmm. uh, quite formative in uh, developing my passion, which was sport before, before that. Um, I played rugby union most of my life, started when I was six. Mm-hmm. Uh, finished when I was about 25 after a host <laughs> of injuries. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Um, but then I thought, you know, what else can I do? I was always really passionate about the body and how it works and muscles and things like that. So I went into exercise science and there was sort of like three pathways you could do, um, which was teaching, coaching, or physio. Mm. Uh, so I went into I went into teaching uh, from there, I did a diploma of education, and then uh, the the story was that you can't really get a PDHP job within the first a full time permanent job within the first sort of five to ten years. Yeah, um, that was way back in you know two thousand and twelve, whatever it was. Um, so I thought, well, while I'm waiting to get a full time job, I may as well do something else. So I. Um, Dove into a Masters of Ed Leadership. Wow. With a focus on learning, being a, a learning leader. So instructional strategies, you know, what's the, the best way kids learn? What are some myths around education? Um mm. research have to say around it. And then from there I sort of went into the the EDD. That really is incredible. Like what a great journey. And now of course you're in a great position where you've got all of that kind of um, basic pedagogy knowledge, but also that expertise within PDHPE. You're in a great position as a PDHPE um, head of department. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm the head of department at St. Charles College in Greenacre. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So how on earth are you balancing your time as head of, head of department <laughs> and doing a doctorate at the same time? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting balance. <laughs> um, the, the thing about the the doctorate and being a head of department is things usually come in waves, so there are sort of these up and down periods. Yeah. Um, 
with the the doctorate, sometimes it's really full on and I'll just be sort of working weekends are, are pretty much a given that I'll be doing something on a weekend for the doctorate, but other times I'll be working weekends and you know, maybe an hour or two after school or an hour before school or something just to wrap my head around a concept or to get some more information. And the sort of the similar thing with the head of department. So the head of department uh, role for me now is really building um, the faculty and building the capacity of my teachers. Mm. And uh, that that takes time. Um, One of the things of being head of department is that you can't go in to a new school as a as a new teacher and um, sort of go, well, this has worked for me in the past. This is what we're going to do. So, the yeah. first, you know, the first month, term, half a year, whatever it is, you're sort of how you're sort of figuring out how you're situated within their context, mm-hmm. and then understanding sort of what the what the staff need, what the students need, and then how can I sort of um, align those needs so we can improve student achievement, whether that's achievement in test scores or social and emotional um, achievement as well. Mm. And do you think your um, your academic background in that kind of um, educational leadership space set you up well for this position or was it something that you really kind of had to learn on a practical level? Yeah, so when I was, it's an interesting question because it's a little bit complex. When I was doing my exercise science degree, um, that was quite uh, straightforward in in the sense that there was no no pedagogy uh, in that in that degree, which is you know that's pretty expected. But when I did my diploma of education, that's when the introduction of pedagogy and um, teaching practices and instructional strategies sort of started coming through. Mm. Um, Since then. Some of those instructional strategies that were used, you know, five, ten years ago have have recently been debunked and yeah. sort of aren't aren't the most effective and efficient way to teach students anymore. Mm. Um, so I think uh, being on top of the research and especially in my in my field, which is cognitive load theory and self-determination theory, sort of lends itself to high-quality, rigorous research and really sort of evidence-informed teaching. Yeah, so I think my uh, my research journey or my you know, university tertiary uh, experience has lent itself for me to be a better classroom teacher and to be a better, a better leader. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Now, in my kind of experience talking to teachers when they go off um, and perhaps they've reached a point in their career where they choose to follow a, a particular specialty um, or change their career in a way that um, kind of focuses on one particular pedagogy or one particular instruction style, it's usually been sparked by one specific interaction with a student, what, something that's really grabbed their interest. Is that what happened with you with cognitive load theory, self-determination? Was there one kind of core interaction that went, that got you thinking, oh, hang on, this is really interesting. I want to dive into this There's, in a bit more detail. Yeah, so I don't think it was one. I think mm. it was more retrospective for me. When I first started teaching, I was I was still, I was still a stereotypical university student uh, who's come out of university with all these great ideas and I yeah. was 
um, you know, mixing it up with, with oh, you know, the real teachers. And yeah. the, uh, the teachers were like, oh, you know, that sounds good. He's, you know, out of university. This must be some cutting edge, um, you know, pedagogy or whatever it is. And then I'd try things that I learned at university in the classroom and they didn't, they, they just didn't work as well as I'd liked. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you an example. There was one where one lesson which took me like an hour to prepare. Um, we had this new room at uh, one of my previous schools and it was it was like a it was like a felt wall mm. and it was covered in a felt wall and you could stick things to the walls um, yeah. and it was uh, tables in the middle it sort of looked like a bar that's what the teachers used to call it we used to call it a bar because there was these high high tables with high chairs there was yeah. felt around it and it sort of looked yeah. reminded us of a bar so <laughs> I, I prepared this lesson for my students where I laminated whole lots of all the all these sort of um, concepts and ideas and I just put them around the room and I stuck them to the wall and then the, the lesson was, well, I gave them a little bit of instruction and then for the rest of the lesson the class had to figure out where the where the concepts sort of where they belonged, where where they under which title would those concepts belong. Oh, okay, like a sorting, matchy-matchy yeah, type sort of thing. Like yeah. A, yeah, sort of like a mix-and-match sort of activity, but they'll move yeah. around the classroom, they'll ripping things off walls and they'll sticking them to other things and it was all very active and busy. Yes, organised chaos, you might yes, say. Yes, organised chaos. And, you know, and at university I heard, you know, it doesn't matter if they're, um, they're making noise as long as it's good noise that they're yeah. making. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, this sounds like good noise to me. Um mm-hmm. So after that lesson, which took, you know, 45 minutes, took the full lesson, um, I was like, oh, well, that's really, really cool. What a great lesson. And then the next lesson I asked them, well, what do you guys remember about the last lesson? And they said, oh, so much fun. You know, we had lots of fun. And I go, oh, well, what did you, what did you learn about this concept? And they're like, oh, I, you know, I remembered that um, it was lots of fun. I just had a really yeah. good time. So what, and I was like, at, at that point in time, I was like, oh, that's a bit odd. You mm. know, they, they really had fun and they thought they'd learned, but they couldn't really recall any content information. Mm. And I was speaking to some of the other teachers and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, that's sometimes they just don't remember and that's okay. Was it a good lesson? And they go, yeah, yeah, they really enjoyed it. And they're like, okay, cool. Um, it's always fascinated me sometimes when, new teachers come into a school and they're sort of given free reign of the curriculum and teaching ideas and doing things that they want to do sort of without being um, guided or mentored or anything in, in that space. They're sort of just like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, they, they can do that. They're, very, they're ready to do that, mm. um, even though they really don't have the expertise in that space to, to develop lessons. It's really, I mean, developing lessons is really complex. There's so much content yeah. knowledge and classroom knowledge and experience and context yeah. that comes into developing lessons. Yeah, not to say about all of the specific nuances about those individual children and uh, individual learning plans and the the things that you have to put in, pra- in place for that select set of students so they can progress or so they can access their content and stuff like that. And th- there seems to be a real gap between what's taught in university in teacher training and what actually happens 
in the classroom. Mm. Um, and I think you're right. I think that that particular gap can be filled by efficient mentoring within schools, but perhaps just a little bit more kind of practical experience within that training. What do you think? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there was the the um, document that came out about initial teacher training for mathematics, which was uh, worrying uh, for me in particular. Not that I'm a maths teacher, but if it's where they promoted uh, less effective teaching strategies to to our new teachers coming through, mm. um, and that was a little bit worrying for me. And if they're doing those, if they're promoting those types and encouraging those types of teaching uh, at a university level you know, for mathematics, I'm I'm just really curious what other types of are they promoting the same types of teaching across the spectrum? Are they doing that in English? Are they doing PDHPE, which is you know my my subject area? Are they doing it in arts? So. It'd be interesting to see exactly what um, teaching or pedagogical practices they're they're promoting or encouraging at university. Mm, definitely. Um, well, I want to go back to that actually because you mentioned um, about your experience discovering kind of those efficient teaching strategies, but also some myths around effective learning strategies. Um, can you go through a couple of those kind of commonly held myths about how learning takes place and how we should be facilitating it and then what we should actually be doing, what the research shows us that we should be doing? Yeah, so um, some of the, one of the most pervasive sort of educational myths is learning styles. Um, it's yeah. something that just comes up again and again and again and it gets rebranded and then it comes up again. Um, so learning style suggests that students like to learn in a particular way and they learn better from that particular way. Um, the ones that are probably most common are, are visual learners or kinesthetic learners or audio learners. Yep. Um, but the research, there was a really good paper by Kashler and a few colleagues that sort of debunked this and then right at the end in the conclusion it said teachers have a limited amount of time and using their resources to accommodate for students' um, learning styles was not a really good use of their time. Um, But it's something that comes up again and again. Mm. Um, More recently, and this um, is a little bit controversial, they've got... Uh, universal design for learning, which is a framework, um, but when the the conceptual understanding of UDL becomes operationalized, um, it does have some striking similarities to to learning styles. Um, right. There are in my classroom at the moment. Um, it's really it's really difficult, even with the students, to to get them to understand that, no, you guys can learn in every way. Um, you don't have one learning style mm. or one one learning, you know, preference where you learn the best through that way. Everyone can learn in every way. But because what I've noticed is because they've been told from such a young age that they're a creative learner or they're a maths learner or a logical learner, mm. that they've developed that skill so well 
that the other mm. skills, and this is the danger or the harm of really um, encouraging learning styles, that the, the other skills haven't been developed. So it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, for our students when uh, when they come into high school or after they've spent their years in high school um, thinking that, that they only can learn through visual learning or um, audio learning. There are students who go to sleep listening to things um, yeah. just so they can remember. Maybe it's sensing to their subconscious. That's that's what they think. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting that that's actually been debunked. Um, I'm just wondering, and I love the controversy, I love the controversial subject, so please don't hold back. I, I love yeah. digging into these. Um, I'm just wondering how much enjoyment comes into um in inverted commas a person's learning style as a factor in how much they're kind of taking in because you know as adults we obviously have a preference in how we like to learn I think I'm very much a visual learner and a doer um I don't like just listening to things I don't feel like I take things in as well but I know that I can and I do understand that but for children is do we have to consider a factor of how much they enjoy taking in content in one particular style in terms of how much they learn. Yeah, well this is this is interesting because what what they enjoy, I mean it's it boils down for me and I'm I'm framed in a particular way because this is what my uh, ADD is about um, is yeah. motivation. So self-determination theory is partly a motivational theory. Right. Um, yeah, so when we look at you know, what students enjoy, we need to sort of look at, well, what do we mean by what do students enjoy? Does it mean that are they engaged? Does it mean that they're having a fun time? Does it mean that they're learning? Mm. Um, so we might need to sort of unpack what what is enjoyment in, in the classroom? What, what, do you, what do you mean by that at least? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I can go back to your organised chaos lesson there and immediately as a teacher think, oh, yeah, no, that's a really good way to get that content across and get them moving and get those different learning styles happening mm. as such. But clearly the outcome of that wasn't learning. It wasn't what you wanted to get out of it. So was that enjoyment a factor in there? Probably not. Actually, that content could have been organised in a way that um, connected with them slightly differently to build that engagement as well as that interaction with the content so I don't know I don't know whether it would work differently with different age groups either yeah that's that's an interesting point as well I mean Mm. some of the the research that I've done spans across the ages but I have I'm I'm focused really on secondary students yeah and I think there's a bit of a romanticised perspective of education which sort of stems from the Rousseauian sort of ideology of what education should be. Yeah. Um, I think that education, some people view education as a, sort of a magical, mystical surprise um, <laughs> where, you know, we are drawing out the education of these students and we don't want to sort of oppress their creativity or, you know, by giving them um, the answers or by providing them with a scaffold or telling them how to do things and then giving them, you know, uh, ways that they can apply it might suppress their creativity. 
in in some way. Mm. Um, I I just don't think that's true. Um, but it does also boil down to sort of uh, what do you think is the purpose of education? Um, if it's you know if it's to master concepts and to master and understand ideas, then the research points to a uh, direct instruction um, as as a way of teaching, but mm-hmm. some education uh, personalities, people would suggest that direct instruction suppresses creativity or it doesn't allow for students to sort of be motivated about learning, um, which yeah. is something that that comes up again and again. Um, but in in um, from a self-determination theory perspective, there are, the competence is something that that promotes motivation. So if we can have our students who are, who are competent, then they're more likely to be motivated to learn. Mm. So do we, should we be seeing, should we as teachers be looking at education as a set of, uh, uh, as taking students through a set of competencies rather than taking them through sets of knowledge? What do you mean by uh, yeah, what do you mean by competencies? I mean, I guess more of a skills-based curriculum. Obviously, there's been talk talk about um moving away from a knowledge-based curriculum to more of a skills-based curriculum for years now, and it just never seems to get done. But is that something that we should be aiming for? Should we be aiming to teach students skills in one context that they can then apply to other contexts and assess that ability rather than the ability to remember sets of knowledge? Uh, I would disagree. Okay. Yeah, I think a knowledge-based curriculum is, is the way to go. If students don't have the knowledge, then I think the the outcome is a skill. So the result is, um, I'll give you an example. So Mm. if we're looking at, if we're looking at maths and we want them to be good mathematical thinkers as a skill, then students have to know their times tables. Mm. If they can recall or what's called automaticity if they if they if you go what's three times four and they go 12 and they Mm. don't need to think about it that hasn't taken up um space in their brain Mm. and they'd be able to use um they're called schemas yep uh, those schemas to figure things out but without the knowledge there to support the schema, then I don't think sort of uh, backwards engineering it and teaching them a skill that's transferable, which is another sort of contested area in education where the skills are actually transferable or not, yeah, um, is is the right way to go. Some of the research, especially um, uh, there was a follow follow-through project on direct instruction uh, which looked at how knowledge-based curriculum and, yeah, knowledge-based curriculum and direct instruction really support student learning and they um, had greater gains in achievement than 
than other sort of other ideas or pedagogies. Yeah, that's really interesting. Really interesting. I'm just wondering, you you said about a romanticized perspective of education, and I completely agree with you. And I think it uh I think education and the needs of education have kind of changed over time. They're obviously a lot more different now than they were 30 years ago. What's your perspective of education? What do you believe education is, should be, should give us? Um I think look, I think I think education should be clinical um, in the sense that I, I don't want education to be like medicine because it's not. Mm. Um, but I do think that there are more effective teaching strategies for a group of students um, than other teaching strategies. And I think that okay. we should promote these teaching strategies above the other teaching strategies. Okay. Do you want to take us through a couple of those strategies that you yeah, think yeah, should yeah, be promoted? Yeah. 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 So I think definitely direct instruction yeah. can be promoted above discovery learning or um, productive failure, mm-hmm. uh, especially if students don't have uh, the expertise uh, or, the, or the background knowledge to solve a problem already. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've seen in cognitive load theory and a study by uh, Greg Ashman was that productive failure uh, is less effective than direct than direct instruction. Oh, sorry, that's my folks. Um, so, yeah, he in his experiment with um, productive failure and direct instruction, he showed that direct instruction was more effective for students who were, who were doing solving maths problems. Um, mm. But there's also another uh, theory from Sweller and cognitive load theory that looks at expertise reversal effect, which is it, it sort of aligns with Vygotsky's uh, zone of proximal, proximal development. development. Yeah, yeah that's the one. Um, so what, it's a, what expertise reversal theory suggests is that as students gain expertise or knowledge, um, we should remove the scaffolding or the help. So yeah, okay. Once, yeah, so once they've got all the knowledge they need, then we could do um, a discovery-based activity. But really mm. it's, it's not, it doesn't become discovery then, it just becomes independent practice. Yeah, okay. That's really cool. Yeah, I like that. Now, how does that kind of thing fit in with learning in the early years where current thinking about um, pedagogy is all about that discovery learning and um, I guess you could call it independent practice, but obviously there is a lot less direct instruction down the end of the school. But is, is that because they're a little bit younger or should we still be applying that kind of direct instruction pedagogy even within that age group? Uh, the, I'm, I'm not sure what the research says because I'm, I'm not across that, but I think mm-hmm. that because cognitive load theory is based on human cognitive architecture, how the brain works, mm-hmm. um, then direct instruction would still hold to be the most effective or one of the, the better ways uh, to teach the younger students, 
it's like if they were, if we were teaching you maths and we wanted them to figure out, you know, three times four or their, their nine times tables or whatever it was, and we go, okay, well, here's here's some some patterns. What do you guys realize about these patterns? And we wait for them to to sort of try and figure it out. But while mm. we're waiting, what we're doing is we're burning through their cognitive resources. Where mm. if we told them, hey, this is the pattern, I want you guys to figure out um, what three times four is now, what three times five is, what three times six is, and we get them, we tell them the pattern or we or we give them an answer and then we give them questions where they can um, apply their thinking, mm. then that would be a more effective way um, for those students to learn yeah yeah cool I can I can just hear all my early years friends yelling at this episode right now (laughs) just because you suggested their students learning the nine times table Um, so we won't go into that (laughs) obviously that's not going to come into your early years classroom Hmm. we hope we hope um, okay, thanks, Michael. That was really interesting um, to get a bit of bit more of a theoretical perspective, I guess, on education. Something that we haven't we haven't had that much on the podcast. So thank you. Um, so now I've got a few questions for you. I mm-hmm. sent you over a list, um, and there's some odd ones in there. So I'm I'm excited to get into your brain on this one. So this is from I guess your perspective as a head of department or a classroom teacher mm-hmm. what was what has been your gold star moment a, a moment that's really made you smile in the classroom or in school um yeah it's, that's an interesting uh question because uh when I went into so in the in the classroom my year 12 students were really used to having notes up on the board and they'd copy those notes down or when the teacher was speaking, they'd be writing notes at the same mm-hmm. time. So um, just to go back to, to cognitive load theory, what what it suggests or when teachers talk and students write notes, um, a, a common myth is that they can do both of them at the same time really effectively. Mm. Um, but what the research shows us is that students will either listen to what the teacher is saying or write notes, but they can't do both effectively. So they'll sort of pick up bits and pieces here and there. Um, So what I really enjoyed was just telling the students, look, when I'm talking, um, you guys should be listening, and then I'll give you some time to write down those notes Mm. um, so they can concentrate on both of them. But what I did notice is that um, because they were used to copying things off the board, it took me a little while to give them give them material first, and then I said, "Well, from this material, I want you guys to answer these questions." But they found it a little bit difficult or challenging to answer the questions. Yeah. And so I gave them after about four weeks of doing this, I got about ten minutes of the class dead silent thinking and I could feel the learning happening in the classroom Mm. and that's when I was like oh this is a gold star moment for me and it's really sort of catalyzed their learning um it's really um started to pick up some of them are handing me past papers now um 
and they're thinking about what they're writing, they're able to manipulate the information that they have to answer the questions appropriately instead of regurgitating things that they've they've copied down from the board. Yeah. That was really a gold, uh, sort of a gold star moment for me. I love that. It's interesting that it took that amount of time to um to get that skill happening is that is that pretty normal for that age group like Mm. as adults can we do that quicker what have you seen yeah I I don't know I don't know Mm. um the the last school I was at I was there for about five years so I was used to the students I didn't do in my classroom if you came in and walked into my classroom wouldn't be anything fancy the students I would be there the students would be there they'd walk in they I mean the the fancy things in my classroom were the students would walk in and they'd sit down and they'd be ready to learn that that's as fancy as it sort of gets I would would explain a concept and then from that concept I'd go okay I want you guys to answer these questions and they'd sit down and they'd answer the questions to the best of their ability and then I'd come around and I'd check and I'd go oh well um this is this is right. I really like how you've done this, but you might want to check that with someone else. Can you you know turn and talk to your partner for thirty seconds or ten or fifteen seconds or whatever it is, and then see what they have, and then they'll they'll come back and go. Well, so and so said this. Well, now we're really confused. Um, mm. What's it about? And then I might open it up to to the class, and then if I do need to clarify things, um, then I clarify things to the class. But before I've done that, I'll make sure I'd look around at what some of the other students have written and go, well, uh, you know, James over there, do you want to explain your answer? Yeah. And then give them that chance to be successful and go, oh, yeah, that's right. How does that answer differ from, you know, Marie's answer earlier? What, what yeah. are the differences there? So I yeah. Think, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nothing fancy. There's nothing magical going on in the classroom, but what's, yeah, you know, what's, um, surprising is that students come into the classroom motivated to learn. There, there are routines that I have that they are all aware of. They, they all, you know, we have really good relationships. It's, you know, it's sort of bread and butter teaching. There's, yeah. there's nothing really exciting or sort of, you know, innovative <laughs> that's going on in the classroom. It's just good bread and butter teaching. Yeah. Fantastic. That's awesome. Um, Okay, the next question is um, kind of about you, kind of about the people that you've grown with in your career, but Mm -hmm. also the people that have supported you. So this is a chance to big up a bestie um, in teaching or in your training, someone who has really supported you in your skills and your development, or someone that's inspired you, I guess. Oh, there's a long list of people for this. when I, when I first started, uh, there was a, probably uh, so some of my career started off at St. Clair's College at Waverley, um, and they were really, really good teachers there. Um, one of the teachers that inspired me was a teacher by the name of Amy Webb. Um, she was just a fantastic teacher. She had really good rapport with the students. She was a really good teacher. Um, alongside her, I had a really good emotional support from a guy called Brian Peekle. Um, while I moved away from St. Clair's College, I went to Ascom and I had a uh, really good support from teacher called 
uh, Ashley Cheekwee. She's a, a history teacher. She's in the Hizzy department. A lot of my friends uh, cross faculties. Um, yeah. While I've gone from when I went from Ascombe to the McDonald College, I had a guy called Nathan Fallon. He was really good. My head of department, Charlene Murphy, was really good in building my expertise, especially in the Stage 6 course. Mm. Um, I learned a lot from a science teacher called Chris Warren. He really knew uh, a lot of policy and gave me a different perspective in understanding the intricacies of students and how to move students' learning forward um, yeah. in his own way, which was interesting because and what I, what I learned from Chris as well was that while teachers may say one thing, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that's that's what they're doing in the classroom or that's what aligns with what I know from the research. So some some teachers, for instance, say, I love it when my students discover their learning and I'm able to build learning around them. But when I go into their classroom, it's all direct instruction. Yeah, they're not doing that. They're not, yeah. they're not doing discovery learning. <laughs> no, they're doing direct instruction. You know, so it's it's really interesting to see how sort of teachers frame their teaching. Yeah. And um, understanding that. You know, while they might say, you know, I'm I'm a visual learner. I think students are visual learners. What they're really talking about is, oh, I use a lot of dual coding or um, graphic organizers to help students learn, which yeah. is you know fantastic because it's completely evidence based, it's research based, and we know it's effective. But they'll they'll say, oh, I'm a visual learner instead. You know, so you really have to sort of unpick exactly what they mean. And yeah. you have to watch what they're doing um, when they're doing yeah. it. Um, while, while I'm at uh, St. Charles Bells College, I've really appreciated uh, some emotional support from a guy called Charlie Shalala. Um, yeah. He's given me a lot of insight into the school. Um, he's been there for over 20 years. He's the director of pastoral wow. care there. Yeah. Um, and my staff at St. Charles Bells College are really, really hard working. I've got a girl called by the name of Jenna Bulos. She's really hard working. Catherine Zalua, she's come up from the primary school. And yeah. interestingly, um, I told Catherine Zalua about learning styles and how they don't work. Um, yeah. When she was like, oh really? She was creating lessons for for kids who were who were audio learners, who were visual learners, who were kinesthetic learners, and she had a matrix of different learning, different ways they could learn, and it took up yeah. quite a bit of her time. Sure. And I said, you know, it, it doesn't work. And I gave yeah. her some, some papers on it. I gave her some blogs on it um, from reputable people. Mm. She, you know, that was a, a big learning thing for her. And I got some, also some help from Jessie Alaga, who's really good, has a really good rapport with the students. Um, yeah. The school, while the school isn't, a low SES school, it is sort of an average SES school, which means that we get a, a good cross-section of society um, and she manages to have a really good relationship with a whole lot of those students. So that's something that she's helped me with as well. Amazing. Um, yeah, Robert Robert Knuckler, he's our, he's our um, sports guy. He's cool, calm and collected and the students really <laughs> respect him. It's, yeah, it, it, they're just a really good team and the people that I've, 
come across a, a really, really sort of expert in their own way and they all contribute to the way that I that I teach and, and how they support me. And, yeah, I've just got, yeah, you know, I've, I've got a lot of friends in, in the teaching industry. We're quite a tight-knit yeah. industry. Um, I also want to uh, shout out just to Andrew Darcy as well. He's the head of department science at Woolwich Sisters, uh, Morris Woolwich Sisters, so he's helping me a little bit with my new role as head of department and giving me a little bit of medical support in the way that um, he does things and how I can do things but always reminds me that, you know, we're in different contexts and we have to understand our context. Sure. Amazing. Well, that is um, probably the longest list of yeah. shout-outs we've ever had, which is fantastic <laughs> I love a good shout out thank you for that no worries. um yeah that was really awesome of course as teachers we wouldn't be in the positions that we're in without the team around us so yeah, thank you course. for all of those shout outs yeah, yeah that's right. amazing so the next one's a bit of a weird question mm-hmm. um what feels illegal but isn't illegal in schools or teaching the five-day working week is starting to feel a little <laughs> bit illegal uh, at the moment. I'd love a yes um, a, a four-day working week, even if it's just four days with the students and then a one day of administrative. Yeah. Um, that would be really helpful and I think really valuable <laughs> for <the> teachers. <laughs> I'm sure I'd get a lot of support for that <laughs> from the teachers. Definitely. Uh, support I'm sure I, yeah. I'm sure I read somewhere there's meant to be a trial of a four-day working week in Australia in, like, 2023 or something. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because aren't they doing it in Scandinavia at the moment? Yeah, I've heard something overseas in the European countries. I'm not sure if they, yeah. they're, they're doing something uh, in Australia at the moment. So it would be interesting to to follow that exactly what's happening. Yeah. Do you think that will benefit the students as well? I mean, obviously we know it would benefit the teachers, but mm. in terms of kind of student learning, how do you think that would go down? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. Um, mm. I, yeah, it would, it would, we just have to have a look and see, I guess. Yeah. Um, my initial feelings would be uh, how how could it be beneficial if they don't have that time in the classroom? But then again, I'm, I sort of check my thinking and I'm like, oh, well, you know, the, the four-day working week has been demonstrated from businesses and things like that where productivity increases for a four-day mm. working week. So it might be something that, that happens similarly with the students, but I just don't know. I don't know if it's gonna if it'll benefit their learning in particular. Yeah, that would be an interesting one to watch. I just wanna wanna say to anyone who's listening, if you happen to be involved in the four-day working week pilot study in Australia, don't fuck it up for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> we really need this. <laughs> awesome yeah I think lots of people would agree with you there Michael definitely um as a head of department what do you wish you had more of or less of to make your job easier oh yeah um I wish it probably goes back to that four-day working week I wish I had more time to develop my curriculum and and to develop my staff to develop curriculum and things like that it just seems like we just don't have the time to sort of pause and develop develop ourselves and develop the things that are the core the core teaching of the, the core business of teaching which is learning and obviously mm. that learning stems from from the curriculum and the programs and the resources that we build and things like that so i think um, i wish i had 
more time to develop those resources. Um, yeah, I think I think that would be that would be. And while I'm not um, against purchasing resources, it's really difficult to find resources that match the needs of our students. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the stock standard off the shelf stuff. Um, yeah. Even if it is there to to provide some sort of a start, we still need time to look at it and go. Well, how can we? adjust this for our students so we still need that time and is that what is that something that kind of those resource resource providers need to understand about teaching is that they can put out as many resources as they want but actually if it doesn't if it's not meeting the needs of individual students which how can it right because they don't know them yeah it's not going to be any use to teachers yeah look I, I don't think it won't be any use to teachers I just don't think that it's going to be as effective as they think it is. Mm. Um, we, we can't take a resource and just straight away integrate it into our program or just fly with it straight away because the, the resources just aren't built for our, for our students and they're not built for our teachers as well. So some of the resources mm. may be um, advocating for a certain pedagogy, one that's less effective or some of the resources might be focusing on communication skills where our, where our students might be really good at communicating and they need more practice with literacy skills. Yeah. So, it, it, yeah, it's really quite um, context-sensitive uh, when, when we're building resources or purchasing resources. Mm. Um, okay, what's been your proudest moment in your teaching career? My proudest moment? The EDD is something that I'm really proud of. Um, mm. At this point in time, I think I think being a head of department and developing my teachers is becoming one of my proudest moments just because of the, the impact that I have and I'm seeing the impact in the students, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, being a PDHPE teacher as well is something that I'm really proud of only because it's... PDHPE gives us the scope to help students in their emotional and social competencies and help them with their mental health and be able to develop those types of relationships with students. There was a student who I had a really good relationship with and uh, her friend was uh, becoming bulimic or she was bulimic. Mm. Um, And because of my relationship with that student, I was the first teacher that she told that these things were happening. Wow. You know, so those types of things have happened to me as a PDHP teacher, I don't know, five, five to ten times. I remember a student came to me because um, their parents had a bit of a rough night and they didn't wash their clothes, so the student, you know, divulged with me exactly what was happening and mm. they felt comfortable telling me that. Um, another student came to me saying that one of their friends was having suicidal thoughts and they didn't know what to do. Oh, um, wow. So they came to me and asked for me for advice or, you know, what, what could I do? How could I guide them to, to help them? And eventually the school, you know, took the appropriate steps and, and all of the, the students are doing really well now. So, yeah, wow. I think those are sort of my, my proudest moments where I can 
uh, help help the students sort of beyond, you know, yeah. usual academic sort of achievement stuff. Yeah, um, that's the thing, isn't it? I, I see this a lot when I ask this question and a lot of those moments for um, teachers seem to be the moments where we're acting outside that professional academic role. We're, and it, it just shows that as a profession, we're not just um, a single skilled uh, profession. We are teachers, we are nurses, we are social workers, we are, you know, substitute mothers and fathers. Some yeah. days we are nurses, we're comedians, you know, whatever. Yeah. We need to become whatever those those children and young people need us to be some days. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. So yeah, I think I think those were some of my my proudest moments. And one of them actually as well was um a student, if I if I do take it back to to achievement, was a student who had a low working memory and thought she couldn't achieve as high as she would have liked. But because I sort of unpicked some of her um, understandings about how she learned, she was actually able to achieve well beyond what she expected. And I got a, wow. I got a thank you from her and I got a thank you from her mother as well. Oh, um, oh wow. Just, just, you know, saying how much she enjoyed doing PDHP and she's done so well and, um she was, I think she's going going on to be a psychologist now. Wow, that's so, yeah, incredible. Work with kids and, and help them and um, either in the mental health space or, or in the learning space. So Yeah, amazing. Wow, congratulations to her. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Um, okay, now we know that obviously teachers are many things, but we're also um, – a human at the basic level yeah. and in that obviously we make mistakes and we like to highlight those mistakes as well so in that vein can you tell me about your most memorable classroom cock-up um it would probably be when I was a I was a pracky yeah um I had a, a lesson where I was doing a gym circuit yeah and I uh, had about five or six circuits for the students and I had five or six cones out for, for each circuit. But what I didn't do was write down what the circuit was at each cone. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I had to keep telling the students what was at each cone, but eventually I got the students to um, tell the next, the next group, you know, what they were doing. But about, I don't know, 20 minutes or half a, half an hour in, it sort of all fell to pieces. Um, oh, no. The students sort of just went around in circles like three times and I hadn't prepared sort of another lesson for them. Yeah. So for the rest of the <laughs> lesson what we did was we, we just sat down and pretty much just talked about stuff because there wasn't a lesson. <laughs> that was their prac lesson. So while, you know, while it was um, – not the most sort of productive. Uh, the, we, I did sit down and have a chat with students about, you know, their weekend or what they wanted to do or whatever yeah. it was, but the time absolutely crawled by. Oh, <laughs> I was no. just like, oh, my God, when is this going to end? Oh, no. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the, the conversation was a little bit hard as well, so we just sort of just sat there staring at each other. For a bit. Oh dear. Yeah, 
that really sounds quite awkward. Yeah, but, it was. You know, we all go through those mm. uh, those moments, I think, where you think you have the world's best lesson and then it happens and it takes like 12 and a half minutes and you're like, shit, now I've got to feel the rest of yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> good times. Hilarious. Good times. Good times indeed. Yeah. Well, speaking of good times, uh, imagine that you wake up one day and they phone you and they say, Michael, there's been a, a massive mistake. There's issues everywhere. You've been voted the next Minister for Education. You step into your new office. What is the first thing you change about education in Australia? Oh, that's a big question. Mm. Um, what would I do? I, I'm really, um, yeah, from, from a PDHP, I'm really inclusive and I don't like division. Obviously, that's it's part mm. of um, our Australian values. But one mm. of the things that I would like to do is remove remove the sector division in education, so the the public, the independent, the Catholic. Yeah, um, I'd I'd like to remove that division and pull our resources together. Mm. Um, I think the narrative of sort of competition breeds improvement is is outdated or is becoming outdated at least. I think yeah. um, collaboration amongst the sectors and developing relationships would be a, a stronger way forward um, where we can all sort of learn from each other. Mm. Um, I think that would be one of the things that, I've, that I would advocate for. But also um, while there are some things that that plan could improve with, I think that having league tables and um, publicly sort of putting the pressure on the teachers to perform by having mm. league tables and that plan and things like that um, is not a good move for, for our teachers and for our schools. So while I think yeah. the information delivered from that plan is really useful for our teachers, I think publicising it um, and using it where parents can use it sort of as a tool to select which schools they want to go to um, is could be improved. Mm, definitely. I, look, I think you're going to have a lot of support, a lot of teachers yelling at their podcast um, when they're listening to that. So, yeah, absolutely agree with you. Michael, you've been an absolute dream to talk to. Thank you so, so much for coming Thanks. on. Thanks, Katie. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much. So good to pick your brain. Lovely. I'd like to do it again one day if you don't mind. Oh, oh don't you worry. I'll <laughs> get you back on at some point. <laughs> There we go. Another fantastic episode there. Thank you so much, Michael. I hope you guys enjoyed that deep dive into theory as much as I did. Super interesting. Uh, next time on the pod, I have got a treat for you. It'll be a, our Christmas episode, so keep an ear out for that in your feed. But until then, if you're in Australia, well done for completing term four. You did it. Let's look forward to a brand new school year in 23. And if you're in the UK, well done for completing term one. Sit back and relax and open the biscuits now, I think. Have a good one and I'll see you in a couple of weeks.